Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now... Well, if you're a Chicago Cubs fan, and who isn't, right? (laughs) You, You probably know this has been a pretty tough season for our team. We have gone through... Uh, Not just one, but two 11-game losing streaks during the course of the season. That is a franchise record. Uh, It's not a record you're proud of, though. So back around the end of July, they decided they were going to shake things up a bit, and they traded away a third of the starting lineup. Okay, three out of the four superstar infielders traded away. Now, just an amusing side note here. About a week before the big trade, I got a call from a good buddy who has season tickets, and he said, hey, you want to go to a game September 3rd with me and watch the Cubbies? And I'm thinking, absolutely. An afternoon at the friendly confines of Wrigley Field, watching Javi and Chris and Rizzo? September 3rd rolled around, we went to the game, and there was no Javi, Chris, and Rizzo. They're all playing for somebody else now. So what's happening Those of you who are Cubs fans, you know what's happening. In fact, this is something that routinely happens to sports teams that are losing games. Okay, somebody finally decides it's time to rebuild. It's time to rebuild. And so some of our aging superstars have been replaced by younger, inexperienced players who supposedly have great potential. We're hoping they've got great potential. The Cubs have decided that their their big goal this next year is not to win a World Series. Their their big goal is to rebuild a strong and healthy team. Now, I would like to apply that analogy to those of us who are on the Christ follower team. Okay, We, We have been hit hard this year. It's been a tough season for the world at large. Okay, COVID has clobbered us. It's taken away loved ones. It's eliminated jobs, chased people away from church, isolated us from friends, created conflicts over masks and vaccinations, uh, disrupted education, stirred up anxiety and depression. It's been a tough season, and the team is battered. So we've decided at Christ Community Church that our goal for this next ministry season is not to win a World Series. Okay, we're we're not going after something grandiose. Our goal is to rebuild our team and make sure people are strong and healthy and robust in every sense of the word. You probably know if you've been around here for any length of time that every September we roll out at Vision Weekend what our big goal, our biggie goal we call it, our mega goal for the season is going to be. Uh, This is something that we started work on months ago, discussions and prayer and what should be the big objective of the year. And this year, again, we decided we're not going to climb some mountain. What we're going to do is get everybody healthy. You know, this is where the analogy with the Cubs breaks down a little bit because they rebuild their team by trading away certain players and accruing new players. And our intention is not to trade away any of you, all right? But we want to rebuild the players God's given us so so that we're all experiencing a vibrant relationship with Christ. We believe, you know, the best way to do this rebuilding is by deepening our connection to Jesus. So that is our mega goal for the year. 
Uh, it is also the name that we're giving to the series, three-part series that we begin today, a closer or rather a deeper connection to Jesus. I want you to say that with me, would you? Here we go. A deeper connection to Jesus. Now, some of the people watching online didn't say it with me, so we're going to try it one more time. All right, here we go. A deeper connection to Jesus. How do we do that? Well, there's an entire chapter in the Gospel of John that paints a picture of what a deeper connection to Jesus looks like. So we're going to hunker down in that chapter for the next three weeks, drawing inspiration for our lives. Would you turn with me, if you brought a Bible or you've got an online Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 15. And as you're turning, I'm going to give you some context for this passage. Okay, John 15 is situated in a clump of four, four chapters that Bible scholars refer to as Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus' farewell discourse. So John 14, 15, 16, and 17 uh, record Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem after the Last Supper. And when Jesus is done, they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested, uh, tried by a kangaroo court, crucified on a Roman cross. So this teaching is really, really important. These are his closing instructions to his followers. The discourse begins, again, just after the Last Supper in the upper room. But at the end of chapter 14, the first chapter of the discourse, Jesus says to his followers, he says, okay, it's time to leave, let's go. So it's quite possible that chapter 15, which is the chapter we're going to spend three weeks looking at, it's possible it was spoken by Jesus en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you've ever been over there, it's about a 20-minute walk from where the upper room was located to the Garden of Gethsemane. So for 20 minutes, talking and walking and talking and walking. Now, it, it's also possible that after Jesus said, okay, fellas, it's time to leave, it's possible they all stood up, but nobody left, and it could, this conversation could have continued right there in the upper room. Some of you know what this is like. When you have guests over, like you have a, a dinner party and a bunch of friends come over and finally about 11 o'clock somebody says, okay, I guess it's time to leave. And he stands up and then everybody talks for another hour. And finally at midnight, the guy who said it's time to leave is, is going out the door, right? Some of you are thinking, this is my, my community group like every week. Yeah, how do you get rid of these guys? Well, this is what, what could have happened uh, at the Last Supper, uh, John 15 is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. It could have been spoken on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane or still hanging out in the, in the upper room. Uh, but this chapter, John 15, is an extended metaphor. Okay, It paints a colorful picture, and the word picture it paints is a picture of an Eno tour. Now, how many of you have ever been on an Eno tour? You don't know what an Eno tour is, do you? Okay, but you may have gone to Napa Valley, California for one of these. Some of you may have even gone to Italy for an Eno tour. What am I talking about? Call it out if you know. Yeah, a, a trip to a vineyard. Jesus is about to take us on an Eno tour. It's a tour of God's vineyard. So let me read the opening verses of John 15, and you could follow along in your Bibles as I read. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. We're going to stop there today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So this is an Eno tour. This is a tour of God's vineyard. And today I'd like to introduce you to the Jesus vine, the father gardener, and the follower branches. Okay, the Jesus vine, the father gardener, and the follower branches. And don't forget that this extended metaphor, this colorful word picture, is intended to teach us how to develop a deeper connection with Jesus. And when we've got that deeper connection to Jesus, we're going to flourish even in the midst of a pandemic. So, number one, let's take a look at the Jesus vine. Opening words of Jesus, he says, I am the true vine. I am the true the true vine. Now, Jesus' closest buddy, the Apostle John, he wrote these words, an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. And in his gospel, in his short biography, he records seven times Jesus says, I am something. Seven I am statements. And those of you who are familiar with this expression, you know that it's Jesus' not-so-subtle claim to be God. Let me explain. You go back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. God's people have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and God sends them a deliverer, a dude by the name of Moses. Moses, if you know the story, he was not too anxious to take up the job. Okay, God spoke to him out of a burning bush to recruit him, and Moses said, couldn't you send somebody else? He said, yeah, what's going to happen? I go to Pharaoh, the greatest ruler in the world, and I say, you need to let God's people go right. And God says, I will be with you. And Moses says, oh, great. So I just say, God sent me. And the people are going to ask, you know, God who? What, what am I supposed to say? What's your name? And God says to Moses, Exodus 3, verse 14, I am who I am. You're to tell the people, I am has sent me to you. And so God becomes known in the Old Testament as the great I am. The great I am. And then one day Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts making all these I am claims for himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. Seven I am statements in all over the course of his ministry. And you may know that the word, uh, the, the number seven is sometimes used symbolically in scripture. It symbolizes perfection or completion. So Jesus is saying, I am completely, I am perfectly God. And each of these statements tells us something unique about this God become man. So what does I am the true vine 
What does it tell us about Jesus? Well, for starters, let, let me say that Jesus loved to use the imagery of a vineyard in his teaching. You know, he, he would constantly tell stories, parables, and in many of his parables, he, he used the, the imagery of a vineyard. Uh, for example, he tells the story of a vineyard owner who goes out of town, and at harvest time, he sends a servant to collect the harvest from the workers, and they kill the servant. So he sends another servant, and they kill that servant. And it goes on, a few more servants. Finally, he sends his son, and they kill his son. Je Jesus tells uh, another story about a vineyard owner who goes out uh, first thing in the morning, and he hires workers. And a few hours later, he hires more workers. And a few hours later, more workers. And it goes like that through the rest of the day. And at the end of the day, he generously pays everybody for a full day's work, even those who were hired just an hour before. On another occasion, Jesus tells the story about a vineyard owner who sends his two sons into the vineyard to work, and one of them, them says, sure, I'll go, but he never goes. And the other one says, I don't want to, but he changes his mind and he goes. So Jesus loves to use the imagery of a vineyard, loves to tell vineyard stories. But in John 15, Jesus gives this metaphor a twist. He says that he himself is the true vine in this vineyard. And the word true here is, is really important. You might want to circle it in your Bible. It means genuine. It means the real deal. It means that Jesus is not a bogus vine. He's not a counterfeit vine. Jesus is the true vine. Why does he say that? Well, Jesus' Jewish disciples would have understood the point he was driving home. They knew that in their Bible, which is our Old Testament, God's people, the nation of Israel, were frequently referred to as God's vine. Unfortunately, though, this vine never lived up to its potential. Listen to what the Old Testament says about this vine. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. God, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. So far, so good. But then Psalm 80 goes on to say that over time, the, the walls of that vineyard became broken down and wild animals came in and trampled the vine and the vine was eventually burned. Isaiah 5 tells a similar story. God planted a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug up the ground. He cleared out the rocks. He planted the choicest vine. Isaiah 5, verse 6. And then God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Jeremiah 2, verse 21. God says to his people, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Hosea 10, verses 1 and 2, God says, Israel was a spreading vine, but he brought forth fruit for himself. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars to pagan gods. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. You get the idea. You know, God's people were supposed to be a fruitful vine. They, they were supposed to be a visual aid to the surrounding nations. This is what a relationship with the one true God looks like. This is the sort of fruit that God could produce in your lives too. They were supposed to bear the fruit of love and justice and generosity, but instead they were a straggly, withered, grapeless vine. 
And then one day Jesus arrived on the planet saying, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. In other words, I'm going to succeed where God's Old Testament people failed. They didn't have the ability to produce good fruit, but I do. And I can produce that fruit in the lives of people who stay connected to me. Look again at chapter 15 of John, verses 4 and 5. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Let, let me illustrate what, uh, what Jesus is saying here. A few weeks ago, I took my car into the repair shop. And as I was dropping it off, I got into a conversation with a mechanic's wife who was working behind the counter. And we got to talking about what a mess the world is in. I forgot what was happening in the news at the time, but she said to me, she goes, you know, I stopped watching the news. It's all bad news. And she looked at me and she said, why can't we all just get along? I said, that's a great question. You know, here, here's what I think the answer is. I, I don't think our problem is that we don't have a good standard to live by. I say, you know, you, you, you could pick your standard. The problem is not the standard. The problem is none of us has the desire or the power to live according to that standard. So whether you choose the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule uh, or some tips from a best-selling self-help book, or the 12 steps of AA or, or whatever, we either don't have the desire or the power to pull it off. Some of you have been following, following along in our Bible Savvy reading schedule. Uh, we've been reading through the New Testament uh, epistle of Romans, and in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says something startling. I mean, the, the great Apostle Paul, and he says, I desire to do what's good, but I don't do it. You know, the, the good I want to do, I don't do. Instead, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Can you identify with Paul? See, this is the problem of the human race. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, friends. It not only offers a good, moral, flourishing way to live, it says, but you can't do it without the power that Christ can provide and when Christ becomes your vine, he will produce his life. He will produce his fruit in and through you. You get it? Good. So the Jesus vine, the Jesus vine. Number two on our tour of God's vineyard, our Eno tour. Let's talk about the father gardener. Go back to John 15. Let me reread a couple of verses to you. Verse one, I am the true vine and my father... Listen, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. Drop down to verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So I see two activities of the father gardener described in these verses. We're going to look at them in reverse order. So first, what does the gardener do? Well, he prunes fruitful branches. He prunes fruitful branches. A couple of weeks ago, I uh, met with our video team up at a vineyard in Michigan. Now, we didn't go wine tasting. 
uh, we were there to shoot a video, an interview with the, the vineyard manager in preparation for this series that we're doing now. So they're gonna edit down all this footage and you're gonna see a five minute clip next week. But what surprised me as I interviewed this guy is the emphasis he put on pruning. I asked him the question, I said, you know, so how do you get good grapes? He said, pruning. And he said, and pruning is really hard work because it's gotta be done by hand. You can't prune by machine. And he said, it's gotta be done repeatedly, continuously throughout the growing season. And we've got over 20 acres here, he said. Personalized pruning. And that's what the Father Gardener does in the lives of Christ followers. He's constantly pruning us. Now, how does God do that? Two major ways I see in our text. The, the first is not so pleasant, it can even be painful. Hardship. Hardship. The uh, writer of Hebrews describes this kind of pruning in, in Hebrews 12. L listen to this. He says, endure hardship. Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as his children. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. It produces a harvest for those who have been trained by it. So sometimes God prunes us by allowing hardships in our lives. He's not trying to hurt us. You know, this is not a case of pain for pain's sake. God's intent is to make us more fruitful. And so our response to this kind of pruning is really important because these hardships can make us better or make us bitter. And the choice is ours. Now, my landscaper has been a, a really good friend for decades, uh, but I know every year when he comes, you know, he comes once a year just to prune, I know that my initial reaction is gonna be shock. <laughs> my initial reaction is gonna be, what have you done? You know, you destroyed all my plants. They're never going to grow back. But I know they always not only grow back, they grow, grow back healthier and more flourishing than before he did the pruning. Some of you right now, you're, you're going through a time of hardship in your life and you're wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? I want to assure you, the Father Gardener loves you. And his desire is to make you even more fruitful. His desire is that you flourish. Now, there's another way in which the Father Gardener prunes us. We see, we see it in verse 3 of John 15. Just after Jesus says that God prunes us to make us more fruitful, he tells his disciples, now, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The word clean in this verse comes from the same Greek root in the original text as the word prune. Same word. In, in fact, if you got your own Bible, you could circle clean and put in the margin, an arrow to the margin, put the word pruned. So Jesus is saying, you guys have already been undergoing a pruning process. How's that? He says, it's because of the word I've spoken to you. You've been listening to my teaching. 
Now, don't miss this point because it may save you some unnecessary hardship in your life, okay? When, when we spend time in God's Word on a daily basis, not just reading it, but really listening to it, mulling over it, making an application to our lives, God is able to make us more fruitful, and He's able to do it without having to resort to frequent hardships. I'm not saying that you'll never experience hardship if you spend time daily in God's Word. I'm just saying that there are things that sometimes God's got to teach us the hard way because we're not willing to learn it the easy way. And the easy way is to dive into His Word. The easy way is to say, God, on a daily basis, teach me from your Word what you want me to do. Shape me. So if you haven't picked up a Bible-savvy reading schedule, you know, download our mobile app. And at the bottom of, of the mobile app, you'll see it says Bible Savvy. And every day, tap on it, and you'll see what the scripture reading for the day is. And keep a little journal. Just, just write a couple of lines. What's an insight and an application for your life? You know, get yourself into a community group where other people, brothers and sisters, are studying God's word and making application to, to their lives. Join a group like that. You know, best place to get started is in one of our, our rooted groups. So the father is, is pruning, the father gardener. He does it through hardship, he does it through his word. Second activity that he does besides pruning is he cuts off dead branches. Look at the opening line of verse two. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That a few verses later, verse six, Jesus says that these cut off branches are thrown into the fire and burned. Yikes. Does that mean it's possible for a person who at one time is a Christ follower to later be cut off from Jesus and forfeit eternal life? Let me clarify what Jesus is teaching here. See, when it comes to a relationship with Christ, uh, we have a tendency to put people, ourselves included, into one of two camps. You got believers and you got unbelievers. But, but the Bible actually teaches that there are not two camps, there are three camps. You got believers, you got unbelievers, and you got make-believers. Make-believers. Professing Christ followers, but there's not a lot of evidence that their lives are truly surrendered to King Jesus. You know, they may have prayed a Jesus-come-into-my-life prayer at one point in their lives, they, they may occasionally go to church or watch it online. Their, their parents or their spouse or their friends may be true Christ followers. But in their own heart of hearts, Jesus is not really their Savior and King. He's, he's not their vine producing his fruit in their lives. And friends, the Bible is full of verses that describe people who profess Christ for a time but eventually walk away. And the Bible's conclusion is they were never really Christ followers because true Christ followers stay connected to the vine and their lives continue to produce fruit. Hebrews 3 verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Colossians 1, verses 20, 20, 22 and 23. But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body if, how do you know you've been reconciled to God? If you continue in your faith established and firm and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. 
Second John, verse 9, anyone who does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Matthew 7, verses 16 and 17, by their fruit you will recognize them, and every good tree produces good fruit. You get the idea. Make believers may be fooling others. In many cases, I think they're probably fooling themselves, but they're not fooling God. And one day the father gardener will cut them off from the life-giving vine. This is what Jesus says in John 15. So if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, if, if there's no evidence that Jesus is not only your Savior, but, but he is your king, he's your life director. If there's no obvious fruit that the vine is producing in you, I pray that you will recognize that today and that before this day is over, before you put your head on the pillow tonight, you'll find a quiet place and you'll call out to Christ and say, please, I surrender my life to you. Become my vine. Produce your life in me. One last step to our tour of God's vineyard. You know, we've looked at the Jesus vine We've looked at the father gardener. Number three, let's take a look at the follower branches. And I love the way that Jesus restates his main point in the opening line of verse five. He says simply, I am the vine, you are the branches, period. <laughs> in other words, don't get those two roles confused. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You are not the vine, I am. As I, as I was reading this and reflecting on it, it, it reminded me uh, of the occasional conversation you'll overhear where a, an older sibling is kind of bossing a younger brother or sister, and then mom shows up in the scene. And what does mom say? She says to the bossy one, she says, you are not the parent. Okay, I am the mommy here. You are the child. You do what you're supposed to do. You ever heard a conversation like that? Well, the analogy here is Jesus is saying, don't try to be the life-producing, fruit-producing vine. That's, that's my job. That's something only I can do. See, your job is to be a branch. What does a branch do? What's a branch's job? Go back to verse 5. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me, what's the job of the branch? Call it out. That was poor. Okay, I recognize I've not been here for a while, all right? So you're not used to these call-outs. What's the job of the branch? Remain. Remain. Next week's sermon, guess what I'm calling it? Remain. Because there are 11 times in the opening 17 verses of John chapter 15 where Jesus says, remain, remain, remain. Really important word. You know, I got some, some extra ink on me this summer. Uh, it is a grapevine in case you can't see it. Okay, and at the top it says, remain. I'm not going to do this for every series, by the way. All right. <laughs> Okay, but John 15 has been a favorite passage of mine for years. I love it. Now, I, now I'm wearing it with the reminder, remain. That's my job. My job is to remain. Jesus' job is then to produce his life and his fruit through me. Now, 
The interesting thing is, you know, we're not going to talk about remain today. We're going to save that till next week. But I do want to touch on how remaining begins. Okay. Because Jesus doesn't say in John 15. So how does, a, how does a branch get connected to the vine in the first place? Okay, Jesus doesn't tell us how, but the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 11. And Paul uses a horticultural expression, grafting. Grafting. Listen to what he says to a group of relatively new Christ followers. This is Romans 11, verse 17. Now, he's not using the picture of a grapevine. He's using the picture of an olive tree, but same idea. Paul says to these new believers, you, though a wild olive shoot, a branch, have been grafted, there's our word, grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. That's a reference to Jesus. So how do we get connected to Jesus in the first place? Grafting. Now, I picked up on this insight over the summer as I was preparing this, this series. I, I read a little book by a guy named Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was a pastor in South Africa in the late 1800s. Uh, but he had an international reputation as an author. He wrote scores of uh, best-selling books, little devotional books on a variety of topics, and perhaps his most famous one is called The True Vine. It's 31 short chapters, like two or three pages per chapter, so you read it one day, a, you know, uh, every day for the course of a month, and it's an exploration of John chapter 15. Andrew Murray lived among uh, vineyards, and so he knew what he was talking about. And it's one of two resources, by the way, that I'm going to recommend throughout the course of this series. If you want to dig deeper in, into John 15, uh, we will have copies of The True Vine available at the bookshop. The other resource I just want to mention at this point is a study guide that uh, my wife Sue wrote some years ago on John chapter 15. It's nine weeks long. There are five days of homework uh, for every week, and it is amazing. In fact, I used a lot of the study that Sue did in preparation for this series. A number of groups have, have already used her curriculum in the past. So you could use it on your own as a personal study, or if you're in a community group, you could choose it as a nine-week study. I know many groups are going to be using this sermon uh, sermon series for the next three weeks, but you might want to jump into Sue's curriculum when you're, you're done with that. Some amazing stuff there. But Andrew Murray, in his book, The True Vine, uh, he talks about grafting, and he, he describes it in a way that, that I could understand. He said, in order to graft a branch onto a grapevine, uh, some things need to be cut off. He said, on, on, on the vine itself, there needs to be a notch cut out. And then on the branch, the end of the branch has to be cut off before you put the two together, and then you bind them together in order to graft them. And he said, this is how it works in a relationship with Jesus. In order to get grafted into Jesus, two deaths, so to speak, need, need to take place. There needs to be a cutting away. First of all, in the vine. Now, the vine is Jesus. And we know that he was cut off when he gave his life on the cross. And we know that he went to the cross because we, as rebellious people, people had decided to go our way instead of God's way. We had wandered away from the giver of life. And when, when you do that, the penalty is death. And so Jesus took the death we deserve to die. There was a notch cut into the vine. 
And so how do you begin a relationship with Jesus? There needs to be a cutting away in your life. You need to cut off, listen, you need to cut off self-rule. You need to say, okay, I'm no longer going to sit on the throne like the king, the queen of my life. I'm going to get off the throne and give that place to Jesus. A death to self-rule. Until you do that, till you surrender to Christ, you are not grafted onto the vine. And he will not be able to produce his life and his fruit in you. So have you ever surrendered to Christ? He's already been cut off for your sake. Will you cut off your self-rule and say, okay, I'm ready to submit to Jesus, not just as Savior, but as the King, the leader of my life. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to close in a, in a song in just a moment. But God, as we're bowed before you, we want to pray what we call the surrender prayer. And so for those who've not prayed it, there are three really important words. And I want you to own this prayer. Make it your own. You just whisper it in your heart to God. Three words. The first word is sorry. You know, you have to recognize that your state before God, you are a dry, withered branch in danger of being cut off and thrown into the fire. And you need to say, God, I am so sorry that I have defied you, that I have consistently gone my way instead of your way, that even on my best days, when I think I'm doing good, I'm doing it for my sake, not yours. And this cost you the life of your son. I am so sorry. Can you put that in your own words right now? Maybe there are specific sins you know you're guilty of, and you just need to say, yep, this is what produced the deadness in me. Go ahead, say sorry to God right now. And the second word is thanks. You need to thank God for sending Jesus. Jesus came to be the true vine. Where we all had failed to go God's way, Jesus went God's way entirely, perfectly. And now if you're grafted into him, he can produce his life in you. So say, say thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth to be my savior. Thank you for giving your life on the cross for me. Thank you for offering me new life if I become grafted into you. Just thank him sincerely from the bottom of your heart. Do it right now. And there's a third big word, okay? It's the word please. Please, Jesus, become my vine. Please, Jesus, become my savior. Please, Jesus, become the leader, the king of my life. Please teach me this year, this year as uh, I'm striving to get a deeper connection to you, teach me what that means. Draw me closer to you. Produce your fruit in me. Please, please, please. Tell him, please. God, thank you that you love to hear prayers like those we're lifting up to you right now. You love to hear these prayers. That's what your word says. You love it when one person does a 180, turns around, and instead of walking away from you, starts walking toward you. You, you, you love it when we embrace your son as Savior and King. So we rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name, 